We are looking at something that I call the 15 facets of love. We're making great headway. <clears throat> I'm going to pray, and then we'll read verses 4 through 7. I'll review the two that we've looked at, and then we'll look at this third and pray that God will help us. Father, we come before your throne, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, we come understanding the table. Father, the uh, overwhelming price you, pray, you paid for uh, sinners, people who don't even, never even cared for you. Father, we draw this time to look at something that is out of our league. Father, we have no abilities. We can articulate this. We can assimilate the information. But we have no ability. So, Father, by your Spirit that indwells and seals your people, the, the promised, the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit guarding your people, may we rest there so that the fruit of of your spirit, love, this thing that is seen. Help us, Lord. I beg you, help us. In Christ's name, amen. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul sticks this <laughs> right in the heart of the Corinthians. They have corrupted the Lord's table. They had corrupted the worship service. They had corrupted the spiritual gifts. And uh, just go down the line. There was not, nothing that they had not managed to bring the philosophy of man, the, the, the flesh of man, and mix it with what they quote-unquote quote called the spiritual things and ruined it. To the point that the Corinthian church, the assembly of the saints, looked no different than any pagan temple. Any pagan temple. And that's where you and I are today. Um, there are pockets, there are places that the church is strong and vibrant. Not many. Not many. And it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because I, I, I think what has happened is, is the same thing that has happened to the church in Corinth. We take our teachings, our society, our understandings of mankind, humanity, and we try to bring them in and make them a part of Christianity. And therefore, it will look this way, it will respond this way, therefore, what happens? And, and I see this on a regular basis. And I believe that the big part of it is a lack of love. But then I sat and looked at that and said, you know what? I don't even think we know what love is. 
We define love through what we perceive it to be. If I confront your sin today, I am classified as unloving. And, and yet the greatest burden that I bear as a pastor, and I've asked you guys to pray for me, I have one unrelenting battle that never ceases in my soul. The truth in love. I got to give you truth. I got to give you love. You look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a man of truth. But he loved the people. When you, when Jeremiah could look at what Israel was doing and say, God, how can we be saved? He identified with the people. He identified with the people. He's part of the people. And, and I, I pray that we understand it because the Bible, if you want a definition of love, it terms it this way. God is love. Okay, but the Bible, that's the only definition you're going to get. Because everything in the 66 books of the Bible is a description of love. What is the Bible? It describes God. Describes God. And we've looked at these. We've looked at his long-suffering or his patience. Is God long-suffering? Absolutely. And when you think about the word patient, macrothumia, when you think about that, there's no retaliation even when the ability is there to retaliate. Let me ask you a question. Does God have that ability? I'm thinking he does, but he never retaliates. And he says, I have poured my love into your hearts by the person of the Holy Spirit. But then there was the flip side. We looked at this last week. Kindness. Useful. That's the root word. It's useful. Not only do I not retaliate to a person who's injured me, who has hurt me, I actually step up and help them. Now then, I can stop right there and say, how you doing? I can give you that information and say, Get after it. And you know what? It is impossible. It is flat out impossible. Is it? I have to share with you a letter. I want to tell you about love. Okay? Some of you who've been here a little while with me, remember about five or six years ago, we kind of had a door kind of creak open in Vietnam. Okay? Uh, what has happened in Vietnam is um, <clears throat> Indonesia is the largest Muslim population in the world. And it's just south of Vietnam. And Vietnam is a communistic, atheistic country. And here's their deal. They got this religious stuff on the border. Do they want the passive Christians or do we want the militant Muslims? I mean, that's really basically what it is. And so they've concluded we want the... Christians, but they don't want American Christians. They want Christian Christians. All right. So anyway, they're wanting them to take over the orphanages. Okay. And we have, I have a friend right now who's working. He's got four orphanages now, uh, two in, I don't know what it's called now. It used to be Saigon and two in Hanoi. Okay. And, uh, it's flourishing. It's still against the law to preach still against the law to have church. Okay. I run into a, a, a friend of theirs, a, a pastor and his wife, Vietnamese, 
And um, Mrs. An's husband was a pastor in Vietnam. When their church was closed by the police, he was thrown into prison. And because in Vietnam the man is the official, without official papers, she and her children are forced to live on the balcony outside of an apartment. Yet, her love and faith has forged a sanctuary out of her surroundings, and this is how she greets us. My dear friends, you know around here we are experiencing hardships, but we thank the Lord. He is comforting us and caring for us in every way. When we experience misfortune, adversity, distress, and hardship, only then do we see the real blessing the Lord has poured down on us in such a way that we cannot contain it. Okay? We have been obligated recently to leave our modest apartment and for over two months have been living on a balcony. The rain has been beating down and soaking us. Sometimes in the middle of the night, we are forced to gather our blankets and run to seek refuge in the stairwell. Do you know what I do then? I laugh and I praise the Lord because we still can take shelter in the stairwell. I think of how many people are experiencing much worse hardships than I am. Then I remember the words of the Lord to the poor, O Lord, you are a refuge from the storm and a shadow from the heat. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 4. And I, great, I am greatly comforted. Our Father is the one who, according to the scripture, does not break the bruised reed, nor put out the flickering lamp. He is the one who looks after the orphan and the widow. He is the one who brings blessings and peace to numberless people. I do not know what words to use in order to describe the love that the Lord has shown our family. I only can bow my knee and my heart and offer to the Lord words of deepest thanks and praise. Although we have lost our house and our possessions, we have not lost the Lord, and He is enough. With the Lord, I have everything. The only thing I could fear would be losing his blessing. Could I ask you and our friends in the churches abroad to continue to pray for me that I will faithfully follow the Lord and serve him regardless of what the circumstances may be. As far as my husband is concerned, I was able to visit him this past summer. We had 20 minute conversation and it brought us great joy. 20 minutes. How's your love? Why isn't there any bitterness there? Okay, let me tell you something. When I share these texts on love, the first response I get is, well, but that's God. Well, but that's Jesus. How do you deal with Stephen? When the stones are crushing him, he looks to heaven and says, do not hold this charge against these men. I ain't saying that. Hit him. And the one who threw the first rock, get him really bad. That's why when I talk about this love, we all sort of glaze over. Well, that's just a God thing. Really? Do you think Mrs. An 
thinks it's a God thing? Hmm. Is my love long-suffering? Is my love long-suffering? Is my love so long-suffering that even when the person continues to injure and to injure and to injure and to injure and to injure me, I am still wanting to do something useful for them? Stone them or something. That's what's being said here. And he's basically getting on the Corinthians saying, you guys are zero. You amount to nothing. Your spiritual gifts have no benefit. They're noisy when you speak. When you serve, they accomplish nothing. You can even give yourself over to martyrdom and it is of no profit. Why? You don't have love. You don't have love. It is fruit of the spirit. It is not of natural man. Natural man, lose all your possessions, sleep on a balcony. It's in the middle of the monsoon season. So you get to praise God because now I can go down in the stairwell and stay. Oh, by the way, I got to see my husband for 20 minutes this summer. Natural man can't do that. Natural man can't do that. And that's why I'm wanting us to listen to this. That's why I'm taking my time to this because I'm thinking that maybe something here is a little important. You take the beam of light, which is love, you shine it into the crystal that is God and it comes out in 15 facets. And that's what we're looking at. 15 facets. And guess what? We get to look at the next one today. Understand love. It's action. It's a verb. The syntax of this text Shows an action. There's no adjectives. It's written in, in the English language as adjectives. It's not. Love is. Love is in the process of what? Long suffering. Love is in the process of being useful to the person who is causing you the suffering. Love is in the process of, here it is. Depending on your translation, it may say envy or jealous. Envy or jealousy, depending on your translations. Listen, when I look at this thing, I, I basically, I know that there are two types of jealousy that exist in humanity. One is what I would call a superficial jealousy, and the other one is a, um, that's <laughs> excuse my phrasing, it is a rotten, stinking jealousy. Okay? Well, it is. Um, Shakespeare called it the green sickness. Okay? Um, Solomon calls it the rottenness of the bones. A Latin proverb says that it is the enemy of honor and sorrow of fools. Okay. The super superficial jealousy is that I want what you have. Oh, I wish I had that. Okay. But that's not the deepest jealousy. The deepest jealousy is that says, I wish he didn't have that and I resent that they do have it. William Barclay said it's the meanness of the soul. Okay, that deep jealousy. And let me tell you something. If you think you're not experiencing it today, you're a fool. You're a fool. 
The problem with some scripture texts, there are too many illustrations. Jealousy is one of those. It's everywhere. We have whole industries that are based on it. But that deep jealousy is not just that you want it. I don't want them to have it. And that's easy to be there. It's easy to be jealous. You know what is really scary about it? It is easy to be jealous and be spiritual about your jealousy. I know people, I myself have been guilty of actually validating my jealousy. Let me use it for my illustration. You hear a person preach. Okay, what do I do for a living? Okay, you hear a person preach. How often do you hear this? Well, maybe you don't. I do. I've heard better. Why? Then there's those that you'll run into. They'll preach and they are really good. And those are hard to deal with. You're just daggone. I need to stop this. I remember early in my ministry, I would read Spurgeon and uh, Dr. MacArthur and I'd read these people and these people and I kept thinking, how am I going to be like that? And me and God wrestled for years. And he says, you ain't them people. Just do what you do. I'll give you the words. Oh, okay. See, listen, what I've learned is there are lots and lots and lots and lots of better preachers. Okay? The battle is how difficult is it to rejoice over someone who does exactly what you do better? I know, none of you guys ever struggle with that. Okay? And I could, and you know, part of me was saying, well, I could go down it, but I don't want to do that. I'm just going to keep this one on my personal level. I know a lot of better preachers than me. All right? And I mean, phenomenal, men of God, anointed, powerful, just literally shocking the universe. Can I rejoice at what they're doing? Can you rejoice with somebody? who is doing exactly what you do, except they're getting all the accolades. Can you rejoice? See, we understand jealousy. But do we really? It's like love. You know, in the English language, I love my dog, my grandma, and my car. All the same word. And I hope it ain't all to the same degree. All right? Jealousy is the same way. The root word here, jealousy, means to boil. And it literally is speaking of an inner boiling, uh, a, a, a seething, a simmering that's deep down. See, what's amazing about jealousy? If a person is in adultery, I can spot that. I mean, you know, whoops. Okay, but jealousy you can't spot. It's inner, it's boiling, it's down there simmering, getting hotter and hotter. And every once in a while, it'll just go, go boy. And then you just put the lid back on it. And I hope nobody was there when I did that. Ever worked at a job and somebody got a promotion and you didn't? Ever worked at a job and you've seen somebody got a bigger raise than you got and you do a better job than they do? 
Okay, what's your response? Do you rejoice for them? See, the Corinthians, remember, come out of 31, it says there, the English text says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Um, I would argue that that is indicative, not imperative. Okay? Imperative, command you to desire the greater gifts. Um, basically, I think he's saying you are coveting the better, the showy gifts. What do I see in the church today? That very animal. You know, I find it fascinating that in chapter 12, verse 1, considering spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. And I ask you guys, is the church ignorant about spiritual gifts? Yes. Why? How come the Bible can say, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And I look around at the church and the church is ignorant of spiritual gifts. And I say, we bought the Corinthian catastrophe. We've struggled right along with them. Why? I want to share your gifts. How's come I'm not teaching? How's come I'm not preaching? How's come I'm not doing special music? Yeah, how's come you're not doing special music, by the way? Because don't make me. Just kidding. Just kidding. Everybody's like, I'm out of here, man. This is getting crazy. All right. So I would argue that the conclusion of chapter 12 is indicative, meaning that you are coveting the show of your gifts, but I'll show you a better way. Let me show you a better way. And then you have chapter 13. What is it? Do it in love. Don't seek your gifts. Seek to love. Seek to love. Let me give you a a fancy statement. There's a thing in study of Bibles called hermeneutics. And it's a method of study. And you have to stay true to your hermeneutics. Whatever you start in Genesis, you should conclude with in Revelations. If not, you'll end up in Waco, Texas with DEA outside. Um, One of the principles of hermeneutics is this. The same word is used in the same context. This word means the same. Got it? I know that's struggling, but you're seeing a twist on that. Why? earnestly desire the greater gifts. You know what the word desire is? Same word that you see in verse 4 that we translate envy or jealous. Okay? So if they're both the same words, what are you thinking? Huh? You ain't going to tell me that in the conclusion of chapter 12, he says, I want you to be envious, but now stop being envious. Right? So if I have covet this gift in 31, it's the same in verse 4. There's a negative view of 31, and he's not saying covet certain gifts. The problem with you is you, um, you're you envious of certain gifts. You don't believe me. All right, check it out. Chapter 3, verse 3. 1 Corinthians. Because people are saying, well, Terry's adding the scripture, he's changing the book. No, I want you to... The hermeneutics is what? If it's got something in one context, it means the same in the context. The same word is the same context, right? It ain't changing. Verse 3 says, chapter 3, you are still fleshly. For since there is what? Guess what? Same word. There's jealousy and strife. Got it? 
Jealousy and strife. Same thought. The ones were killing them. There was jealousy. Among your envy, there is strife. You're suffering from what Solomon calls in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, the rottenness of the bones. Love is not envying. When love sees someone who is prosperous, when love sees someone who is popular, when love sees someone who has it all, love is glad for them. Love rejoices for them. Okay? Now then, you want me to give you a model? I don't know. God and Jesus. I don't want God and Jesus because they're like God and Jesus. Okay? All right. I'll give you one that just really hits home with me. A very great preacher, phenomenal preacher, has never had a great... There has never been a preacher of humanity has had a greater impact than this preacher. Okay? Never on the planet Earth has there been a preacher who has impacted planet Earth this, this way this preacher did. He's in jail. Guess for what? Preaching. Go figure. All right, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's in jail. And he says, I'm in jail and the gospel's getting stronger. That's kind of cool. I'm not out. I don't have the big form. I don't have the TV show. I ain't publishing any books. I ain't packing out stadiums. Okay? So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole Praetorium Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now look what he says. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy. Same word. They're preaching Christ in jealousy and in strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who are preaching out of envy, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambitions rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. You know what they're doing? It's obvious that Paul has missed the boat. Or he wouldn't be in prison. If he was really doing what God wanted to do, they wouldn't have thrown his butt in jail. God wouldn't have allowed it. And so you have the young upstarts who probably came to salvation through God, through Paul's preaching, maybe through multiple generations or different lines, but it, who took the message to the Gentiles? These are Philippians. Where is he? He's in Philippi. Who is getting it? The Gentiles. So you've got these people running around preaching. Look, look what God did to Paul. He's old fashioned. You know what? He didn't move to contemporary worship. He needs to keep up with the times. If he hadn't been the old stick, you know what? I heard he preached down in Jerusalem, started early in the morning, went late in the night. Some dude fell out the window. He had to go raising from the dead. People ain't going to listen to messages that long. I preached out at a place, and the guy who preached after me, his first comment out of the pulpit was this. You can't teach a message that the butt can't stand. And as a direct attack on me, he said, I went too long. But, you know what's amazing? They've asked me to come back, not him. Okay? 
I want you guys to get a hold of this. It, this ain't new phenomenon. Let me show you what Paul does. They want to cause me distress by my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You got that? There ain't no jealousy. Some are preaching Christ just to add to Paul's affliction. I'm going to preach it right. See, I'm not in jail. Paul's in jail. Jealousy. Jealousy. He was, big concern was, you know what? Christ is still preached. And I'm rejoicing. That's the spirit of love, brothers and sisters. That's what I'm trying to get across. I don't envy anybody who does what I do, even if they do it better, Paul says. I don't care if they've got bigger crowds, more accolades. You know what? They stand up and clap. Hallelujah. Love rejoices at an other's success in their usefulness in the kingdom of God. They should rejoice in it. Why? That's the opposite of the jealousy. Jealousy does what? I don't want you to do that. How's come they're successful? I do it better than they did. Hey, mine, what is that where you make the letters all sound the same? Alliterate. Alliterate. They, he alliterates his messages. Terry is clueless. He doesn't alliterate nothing. I mean, he's got what love does, what love doesn't. What the heck kind is that? The other side of this is that jealousy, that destruction of jealousy. So, you know what I thought? I thought, you know what? I'm going to look at jealousy a little clearer. And I want to look at this because I'm going to say, what is the manifestation of jealousy? Because jealousy is one of the things you can be jealous and smiling and just be as spiritual as the day is long and be rotten to the bones, as Solomon says. So I said, I'm going to start my Bible and I'm going to go see what jealousy does. So I started out in Genesis. Satan to Eve, you will know as God knows. What is that playing on? Jealousy. Jealousy. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. It's jealousy. Envy. The very birth of sin was based on what? Jealousy. Well, okay. What about next? All right. Cain and Abel. Well, I ain't making very good progress here. Cain and Abel. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. What's that based on? Jealousy. Well, let's go a little farther. I didn't get very far. You had a little boy, second youngest in the family. You know, um, I had a dream. God gave me a dream. It says, you guys are all going to serve me. Sold him into slavery. Why? Jealousy. Dude, I'm not even out of Genesis yet. Prodigal son comes home. I'll go to the New Testament. Comes home. Now think about it. The picture. Do you understand the picture of the prodigal son? Walked away from God. Shook his fist at God. Took everything that God could give him and said, nah, 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 nah. Right? And he leaves. The saints all stay there. They're waiting on him. We're here with God, hanging out with God. Good is going to be good. And all. And he comes back. He comes back. He's repentant. He's remorseful. And what does the saint who stayed do? Kill a fatted calf. We're going to have a party. He's come back. I ain't going. I won't go to no party. 
you see what I'm trying to get at? What is that? Let me give you a, a proverb. Because this is amazing to me. This is Proverbs 27.4. Wrath is fierce. That's what it says. Anger is a flood. Amen, brother. But who can stand before jealousy? Who can stand before jealousy? It eats you up. You don't think so? Go to New Testament. James chapter 3, verse 14. If you are bitter jealousy, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You know what he's saying here? Don't try to spiritualize it. Don't try to spiritualize it. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Oh, you know what he just said there? Where does jealousy come from? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Okay. Got it? I was reading a thing by Oscar Wilde. Okay, now listen. It's got a Catholic mindset to it, but it's kind of cute. The devil was crossing the Libyan desert. Okay, he's cruising along and he comes across the Libyan desert to this massive gathering of his demons. And he thought, what in the world is going on? So he cruises up to his demons and says, what's going on? He says, we're trying to tempt a saint. He said, the saint? He said, yeah, here was this old man who had taken a vow to be away from the people, be solely immersed in God, and I'll stay in the desert forever. And they were throwing everything they could at him, the dancing girls, the money, the wealth, the fame, and all the rest of it. Man just stood faithful, stood faithful, stood faithful, stood faithful. And Satan says, you're not having any luck here. You've got a legion of demons here, and you've got, you're not having any luck getting this guy to come. I have an idea. Let me speak to him. And the demon says, well, we've used every trick you've ever given us. The man refuses. He's stalwart to the truth of God. He will not waver. He will not sin. Satan walks over, whispers in the man's ear. The man's face gets pale. His eyebrows fur up. He gets mad and he runs off. The demon come up to him and says, what'd you tell him? He says that they just made his brother the archbishop of Rome. Jealousy. Jealousy. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. There's confusion. And it's all poured out. And every evil work, it's all poured out of what? Jealousy. Envy. And let me tell you something. It's hard to conquer. Hard to conquer. People get a bigger raise than you do. What do you? What is your first response? People get a promotion that you believe you should have had or you applied for. People get a job that you think you could have done better. What's your response? And you know what I've learned? Jealousy affects every dimension of life. There's not a part of your life that is not affected by it. Only one thing conquers jealousy. Love. 
love. I think about King Saul. Big strapping man. King material. Had a son, Jonathan. Jonathan was a warrior. I've seen a ditch where Jonathan and his went down in this big hole and back up the other side and then whooped the fire out of a bunch of Philistines on the other side. And I just sit there and thought, dude, you get me down the ditch and back up the other side, I ain't fighting. <laughs> I'll take a break, you guys rest. I'll get my breath back, I'll whoop you. Okay, so I'm just sitting there. King Saul is a big shot. He's king. Next in line is who? His son, Jonathan. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this fair-haired Hebrew singer, poet, articulate, a girly boy. And everybody likes him. He's cute. They call him the lion tamer. They call him the giant killer. He's handsome. He has abilities. He can pluck the lyre. That doesn't mean kill the lyre. It means to play it. Okay, everybody, all of a sudden, the popularity moves off of King Saul's and goes to this run Hebrew kid. So what, he lucked out and hit the giant with a rock. Saul hated him. You know why? He was afraid that the throne was going to go where? To the cutie boy. I don't understand. I've been fighting Philistine for how many years? So he decides, I'll harpoon him. I'll throw a spear at him. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's next in line? Jonathan. What was Jonathan's response? First Samuel chapter 20, verse 17, it says, Jonathan loved David as he loved his own. Now, the translation of New American Standard says his own life, but the literal Hebrew is he loved David as he loved his own soul. What made the difference between Saul, the father, and Jonathan, the son? Love. Love. Listen, let me tell you something about love. It is absolutely impossible to be jealous. Can't exist. Love and jealousy cannot exist in the same container. Jealousy is, um, Linsky put it this way, jealousy is hatred without a cure. And it is. Only love will overcome it. No place in the life for a Christian. Jealousy is subtle. It's very effective for Satan. Perhaps his greatest tool. We see and we deal with so many sins that are outward. I mean, if you do not honor your parents, I can spot that. That's not hard to notice. To steal, I understand that. Adultery, I understand that. We, get, we understand these things, right? But you know what? Jealousy is inward. Jealousy can be that you can be jealous of the way a person looks. You can be jealous of the way a person dresses. You can be jealous of the person's job, the way they work their job. You can be jealous of a person's way they sing, the way they speak. You can be jealous of anything. Anything. And yet, the love of Christ in the loving person rejoices in the excellence of others. We rejoice in it. It should thrill us. They sing like an angel. I sing like a cow. They look like an angel. You never mind. (laughs) Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Do you rejoice in it? 
Do I rejoice in the beauty of others? Do I rejoice in the success of others? How about the gifting of others? How about the calling of others? How about the talents of others? Do I rejoice? Because love holds no jealousy, none whatsoever. Jesus sees, when we see Jesus, you think about, does he have kindness? Kindness? Does he do things useful for us? Yeah, okay. How about long-suffering? A time or two. But you know one of the things that you will not hear people really want to preach on? There is absolute total lack of jealousy in Jesus. I came not to seek my own glory, but the glory of Him who sent me. I remember Dr. Stephen Olford preaching. And every time I heard him preach, what was amazing about it? I've heard people preach, and at times it's just powerful. You felt like you was in the presence of God, and other times you're sitting there going, what the heck was that? All right, you should have read your other notes, okay, or something to that effect. And it's just powerful. But you know what? I don't know how many, I don't know how many, probably a few hundred times I heard Stephen Olford preach. And every time I heard him preach, I felt like I was right in the presence of God. I mean, it was just like, boom. And I mean, he could preach for an hour and a half, and you just, Oh, oh, that's amazing. Okay, and I've heard, I've been blessed to hear some phenomenal preachers. Phenomenal preachers. But some of them, you know, they're kind of on and they're off. Okay, I never heard Dr. Olford off. I'm sure that somewhere in his life he was. And he shared with me a story. Early in his ministry, now you got to understand, his ministry started in the middle of of uh, the Battle of Britain when Germany was trying to invade England. He was preaching in a little church in Southampton. And he walked up on the pulpit <clears throat> and there was a sign there across the pulpit. You, can't, couldn't, you couldn't see it. The people couldn't see it. But he could see it. And it just stated this. Sir, we would see Christ. And he said that impacted him. That impacted him. It isn't turning the phrases. That's what I told you guys a couple of weeks ago. If you're going to evaluate this sermon on whether my illustrations are any good or did he make me laugh or something stuck in my mind, you're going to miss this one completely. Because these messages, you have to ask yourself a single question. In light of what I've heard, how do I look? Because see, love is content at wherever you're at, at whatever you're doing. Not complacent, but content. Okay? You know what? I learned from Dr. Olford this sing, single principle that helps me the most. Um, I, I, I had to preach in front of him, the, this class I'm taking. Do you understand how... You guys don't want to understand this. You, if you've never preached, you don't know what I'm talking about. You've got a guy who's never made a mistake reading the Scriptures. Okay, and if you knew his study habit through the week, ay, 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 ay. Okay, and then he had his sermons all written out exactly as he's going to say it on Thursday, and he'd take them to his office, and all day Thursday he prayed over it. And then, after he got done, this is after he's done all of his study for it, he would pray over it, and then as he prayed over every page, every sentence, every phrase, every paragraph, as he did that, then God, he said, God, you make the changes that are necessary in this sermon. 
And then he'd make the changes and give it to his secretary. She would type up the final draft and that's what he would preach. I'm thinking about a Sunday roll around. He's got that bugger nailed down. What do you think? Anyway, I had to preach in front of him. Share a message. Okay? So I got up there to preach. and He's sitting right there. A little white-haired man, about that tall. With this big grin on his face. But he's got this huge notebook and a big pencil that looked like it was about that big around and about that long. And the whole time you're preaching, he's writing. <laughs> now, there was eight of us had over the course of this week, we're going to have to preach. And they said, where do you want to go? I said, first. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> I want out of this. <laughs> Why would I want to sit there in a bathtub full of salt <laughs> and wait? Okay, so anyway. I got ready to go preach, and one of the secretaries was sitting back there. Um, Vicki Kroll, I think some of you I shared, Vicki was back there. She never married. Her ministry was to be the homiletic secretary for Dr. Stephen Olford, and she was with him for almost 50 years and then went on to glory. Strange, huh? Anyway, <clears throat> I was sitting there like this, and sweat was pouring off of every part of my body. <laughs> and she says, uh, what's, what's, what's wrong? And I said, something about standing in front of him. I said, every time I've heard him preach, it's like Jesus is speaking forth to me. She says, he is a man of God. And I said, good. Uh, and she said, uh, I said, well, that just, I said, like, that's like preaching in front of God or something. And she smiles at me. And the English are kind of, and she just taps me on the leg. Young man, you preach before Jesus every Sunday. He didn't have to remind me that. It ain't like I can see him taking notes. <laughs> Jesus said, I have not come to be ministered to, but to minister. Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Love suffers long. Love does kind, useful deeds even when wrong. And love is never, ever, ever jealous. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you have poured your love into your hearts of your people. And Father, may we draw deep to this. Father, this is not in our abilities. Father, this is one of those that we bow and say, Here we are, Lord. Use us up. Father, this is the text that says, may we be a drink offering poured out. Help us, Lord. I beg you. I read uh, Mrs. An's letter uh, from Vietnam and her rejoicing and her understanding of love and the love that is she pours out continually, even in the midst of what she's going through. Father, when I think about... Um, uh, Stephen Olford, Father, when I think about all the people that you've exposed my life to, that love unreserved, Father, it's real. Help me to love as you love. And Father, may we who are called by your name understand rejoicing with those 
who have success because the success is yours. And Father, even as Paul showed us in Philippians, even those who are preaching out of envy, let us rejoice that Christ is preached. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you're showing me. And I pray that these precious saints, called by your name, redeemed by your blood, will love as they are loved. To your glory and praise. Amen.